colleagues, welcome friends now because I think we're, you know, we've been together for some time. Uh, welcome to session number seven, I think, uh, the penultimate. You know, this week we said we're going to be looking at uh, nerves and nervous habits. This is actually one of my favorite ones because so many people struggle with this one. So we're going to be looking at kind of how do we, you know, overcome, how do we work, you know, on, on really dealing with those nervous habits that can impede our ability to be heard. So last week, I think we focused on the last aspect of delivery, which was all about the voice and really liberating, uh, you know, the voices that we have. And of course, some of us last week attributed the inability to kind of even free up this voice, which we describe as an instrument, you know, because of, of these nerves that can sometimes get in the way. So today's session is really going to unpack why do we experience these nerves um, and what are the ways in which we can deal with these nerves? What are the ways in which I can really overcome these nerves? So just in terms of, um, you know, kickstarting the session, I want you to call to mind or to remember one of your worst ever presentations and maybe something that's just happened in, you know, not so long ago. And it doesn't even have to be one of the worst, but kind of where you were in a situation where you had to present and perhaps were a little bit uncomfortable or anxious or particularly stressed. And I want you to think of two words or a phrase or phrases to describe uh, what you remember of that experience and just populate that onto the chat. And let's maybe just kind of start there and unpack some of these experiences that we've had uh, with this. Okay, so I'm going through the chat and on the chat function, you're saying, so Peter says panic and disconnect from myself here. Lucille says embarrassment. So Peter, panic and disconnect from myself here. Just, would you be willing just to share what that experience was? Um, yep. So I was presenting, it was when I was working for a small corporation and um, I was presenting to someone who was a very difficult character um, and he was very demanding. And I think I'd, I'd given a presentation quite confidently around one aspect and then he just started firing these questions at me around something completely different from my presentation. So it was quite an unfair scenario to be in already. But I just remember feeling the sense of panic and that kind of, you know, you kind of feel like you're on solid ground and then you feel like something is completely slipping. Um, and because my my mind had been in, in one frame to then be kind of bombarded, and I just felt this kind of, this lack of self, this lack of, of stability. And just thinking about last week, so I was listening to the recording of it yesterday, that um, the voice is, you know, it's who we are, it's how we communicate what's going on. And it was just really interesting that when I lost that sense of self, there was this fear and then this inability to communicate. Mm. And I love how you make the connections, right? So to it's spot on, Peter, that in that moment something happens. And, and what happened, Peter, in that moment was that your sense of safety was threatened and you're going to see that we're actually going to unpack what happens even to the brain physiologically. You know, how do we respond to threats that we pick up um, around us? And, and so this interruption or this person who is being difficult, um, who throws or bombards you with these questions, causes you to go into that space where you don't feel safe. And when you don't feel safe, you know, you're going to be impacted in terms of your ability to think properly. You can't think because now the priority becomes how do I ensure, you know, that I can protect 
protect myself because something feels threatened. And so we're going to unpack all of that. How do we find ways to self-regulate in those moments where somebody either wants to annihilate my presentation, somebody wants to tear me down, wants to take me to that place where there's a lack of stability. You said I felt like I was slipping, you know, a lack of self. Uh, really powerful there. Thank you. Let's listen to uh, Lucille and then we'll come to Brazil. Hey, hi, ladies. Um, so with me, it happened a couple of years ago, um, actually my previous job. Um, so I, I was presenting to to our CEO and her ex-co and I had done a dry run with my boss and my boss thought my presentation and my ideas were really great. Um, so I went there confidently and our CEO at the time, black female. So, you know, you, you want to impress her and, and, and so forth. Very difficult lady. But yeah, so a couple of minutes into the presentation, her feet, she already gave feedback and she said, um, this is rubbish. And if I tell you that scarred me for a very long time, I wanted to leave that company like the next day. But obviously, I mean, I, I couldn't. But it shut me down. It shut my voice. My confidence levels just went south. Yes. And um, it was only about two years later that, you know, I, I, I kind of started finding my voice again. And, and by then, I, I actually ended up changing jobs. And I'm glad that I did because now, you know, now I'm in a much better company. I've kind of find my voice again. But if I tell you that that feedback, it scarred me for such a long time, mm. especially because it came from somebody that I looked up to. And I, I went in there so confident because my boss said, great work. Mm. And, to find, you know, for someone to shut you down like that. So for me, it was, I really felt embarrassed. That was my experience. And of course, Lucille, even as you are recalling it, right? So even uh -huh. as you are sharing it and recalling yeah. it, you know, the memory is so interesting because even in remembering the experience, you actually almost get like a... Emotional. <laughs> right? It makes you incredibly emotional, even as you remember yeah. it and then retell the yeah. story. Because it took you to such a deep, dark place. Um, this was somebody who I looked up to and they traumatized me in that instant. And again, I'll tell you exactly, you know, how we can connect this in a neuroscientific way um, to understand exactly what happened there. I'm going to introduce you to a wonderful term called psychological safety. And, and that's what it is, that there's sometimes, you know, instances where people threaten our sense of well-being and safety. And in that moment, how do you psychologically create room for yourself to feel safe, even when, you know, kind of things around you are falling apart. How do you do that for yourself? How do you center yourself in a moment where you've been crushed like that? And I'm sorry about the experience. I, I hate it that we have to deal with leaders who operate in such a way. Okay, let's hear from Dudu. Okay, Sissy. Dudu? Hi. Um, when you are basically made a presentation and I thought it was clear and everything um but then you know when you get to the end of the presentation and it's almost as if people did not understand what I was saying and and um, what I said in my chat is I'm, I'm still not sure how I was confusing because you know I thought that I had everything happen so that's just kind of one of my experiences I don't know yeah so may I ask a question? Was this was this face to face or was this virtual? Um, it was face to face. Okay, so it was face to face, and and you say it's for someone not to understand. So so it was one person in the audience, or there was a general sense that there was not uh, there wasn't grasp, there wasn't understanding. 
No, it wasn't a it wasn't a general sense. It was more from this one person, um, just basically saying that they didn't understand. Um, and- I was pitching I was pitching a story, and basically the their their response was, "What is the story?" And um, I was like, uh, "I've been talking for like twenty minutes." <laughs> What do you mean? What is the story? <laughs> mm. You know, so yeah, it's like one of those weird ones. And and maybe just to ask a follow-on question to say, was this a once-off experience, or is it an experience that you have, re- you know, from time to time? So where you get the sense that kind of I've shared the story, I've said this is what the story is, but but I'm getting the feedback from one or two people that it's not landing, it's not resonating. Um, it, it has happened. Before, um, in a well, not before, but it has happened in another setting. Um, but in that setting, um, I could see how the confusion might have happened. But um, mm. this, this one particular one that I was just talking about, I think this one is kind of more of like dealing with maybe a difficult audience member than than being actually confusing myself. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I like I like that you're then arriving at at appreciating that perhaps it, it had nothing to do with with whether or not you were confusing and that maybe you just had a member in the audience who was being difficult, which is why I was asking the questions. Is this something that happens often? Was this a once-off occurrence? Was it a general comment from people? Was it a comment from a specific person? And getting the sense that perhaps it might have just been a particular individual. Um, and I don't want to say they had it in for you, uh, but sometimes we get those members in our audiences where you're not sure what their agenda is exactly. Everybody yeah. else seems to be on, you know, on par. Everybody else seems to be very clear about what's just been shared, um, but they insist on kind of nitpicking, um, and 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 so it can be quite confusing. Okay, no, thank you for that clarity. Um, that's useful to to know. So. I'm going to share that uh, the word that comes to mind for me actually is the word blank. Um, And this is because, and I may have shared the story with you before, but this is because in 2012, you know, I had the opportunity to present in front of, I think, 300 or 400 plus people. It was a big event. And I remember being called up onto the platform and the MC, you know, saying, Zoya Mabuto. um, And this is the title of her presentation. And I remember it was it was in Durban. I remember kind of, you know, walking up to the platform. I remember shaking their hand, um, you know, on the stage and watching them descend the platform. Um, and then I remember looking out at that audience and I just I just hit a complete blank. I was overcome with I have no idea what uh, nervousness. And I just hit a complete blank. I could not for the life of me remember why I was standing there in the first place. I kind of had this like. Uh, you know, overwhelm as I looked down at all of these expectant faces looking at me, uh, waiting for me to deliver. Um, and of course, you know, in that moment, thank God for drama class um, and thank God for some of that training a couple of years before that. But I was able to kind of just, you know, stand still. Um, and I remember looking at that audience, you know, from side to side and just smiling at the audience. And eventually, um, you know, it all came together. I remembered my presentation and I was able to start. But here's the funny part in that story. At the end of it all, I think I remember thinking, yo, I just want to like, I want to be buried somewhere. I'm so embarrassed, etc." And people coming to me to say, yo, that presentation was incredibly powerful. Um, and particularly because 
of how you started. Uh, many of them cited the dramatic pause at the beginning of my presentation as being everything. And I remember just thinking to myself, okay, so I managed to get away, uh, you know, with that one. But also just being reminded that our audiences oftentimes have no idea, uh, you know, what we're going to present. And so this gives us a little bit of leverage, I think, um, that even in those moments where we do slip up or we do forget, et cetera, the reality is that the person who's very clear or who knows how the presentation is intended to flow is you better than them. And so um, uh, that was the lesson I then learned, I think, from that experience to say they had no idea what was happening. Uh, for all they knew, it was just a dramatic pause uh, at the beginning of the presentation. And of course, I stuck with the story and I said, oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you were able to see that that's what I was going for. Uh, meanwhile, I think back at the ranch, the truth was that I'd hit a complete blank. So, I mean, we all have different experiences, I think, on the platform. Uh, but the reality is that all of us have had, you know, some kind of experience where we've gone up onto a platform and whether it was because of ourselves or somebody else uh, may have had a nerve wracking, anxiety inducing, uh, you know, confusing, debilitating experience on the platform. What's interesting is that when we talk about some of this work, we actually realize that there's a term that's been given um, to the sphere that people have of public speaking in particular, and the term is called uh, glossophobia. And in fact, we say it's, it's more prevalent than, than what was initially realized. That a number of people, I think, in populations across the globe suffer from some form of glossophobia. So for some people, it's incredibly heightened. Uh, for some people, it's not so bad. But it does speak to this kind of fear of standing up in front of a group of people. Uh, being somebody who does this work, who speaks to so many different people at different levels of organizations, you'd be surprised at how this is a fear even for people who sit um, in senior management roles, um, people who are having to take on executive roles who say that this is something that is still a work in progress for me. So this fear is real for many people. Um, and in fact, you will remember that not so long ago, uh, we were dealing with, uh, there was headlines around Unaomi Osaka, uh, that professional tennis player. And she made headlines, of course, because she refused to participate in those mandatory media interviews um, at that Roland Garros tournament. And this is because she, she cited having a debilitating fear of public speaking. And she said, you know, it's so bad that this would lead to anxiety ahead of some of the games that I was going to play. Um, and there was a huge back and forth, right, with people saying no, but she had an obligation to participate in those media interviews. You know, uh, and these are the powers that be saying she had an obligation to do it. Other people say no. You know, we're not talking enough about some of these things. She had a right to say that this, this has an impact in terms of my performance um, on my game. Um, this is not something I, I, I want to do. I'm not comfortable to do it, et cetera. Um, and all of a sudden, there was a spotlight cast on this concept of glossophobia or the fear uh, associated with public speaking. So uh, next up, uh, I'm going to then ask us to start thinking about exactly what happens with this public speaking thing. So I want you to imagine that you are, you are sitting where you are sitting and you hear a growling sound coming from the entrance to where you are sitting, okay? And so you hear this growling sound. It gets louder and louder and louder to the point where, you know, you actually need to pay attention to it. And so you make the decision that you're going to get up from your seat, okay? And you walk towards the door. It's happening right now. Okay, so you're walking towards the door. You can hear the sound getting louder. 
And of course, as you open the door, this is what you see, right? So you see this thing called the saber-toothed tiger. And so the question I want to ask you is, you see this thing, what do you do? How would you respond? Okay, so Lucille is screaming. Ah! It's not going to make the tiger go away. So Bako says, I'm running. Where are you running to, dear? Uh, Peter says she'd freeze. Mujari is jumping. Dudu's closing the door. I think the best response here is Dudu who's closing the door. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so here's the thing. Um, all of these responses, okay, speak to um, one of the fight, flight, freeze uh, responses, which are associated with the response generated by the brain when there is a threat in our environment, a threat to our survival. So like you, Peter, whenever I experience any threat um, to my immediate physical environment, I promise you guys, I freeze. If I'm walking to the bathroom in, at night or in the early morning and there's like a weird sound, I'm those types who go, what was that? <laughs> I kind of just freeze for a little bit. So my, my instinctive um, you know, response in, in, in such situations is the freeze. Um, some people say, you know, I would run. Um, that's the flight response. Uh, I would jump. Uh, jump where, Mudari? Jump on the tiger. <laughs> you know, um, Dudu's saying I would close the door. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the reality is this. When we sense a physical threat in the environment, our brain responds such that it must protect us from that physical threat. Okay. And so when it wants to protect us from that threat, it's going to activate that uh, a limbic system. And I'll show you shortly exactly how you can remember all of this. And the limbic system is the system that's responsible to keep you alive. It's the one that sends the alarm signal. Do, do, do. There is danger here. Quickly respond. Now, remember I said to you, in fact, I didn't say to you, all of this is happening incredibly fast. Okay. So there's no time to think when there's a tiger in front of you. In fact, you activate that limbic response without even thinking. So let's do a quick activity just for, for you to kind of really understand how this works. So I want to introduce you to something called the brain hand model. And the brain hand model is um, it's a wonderful way for us to really understand what happens in our brains. And in fact, what I'm going to ask you to do is just lift up your hand like I have done so. Then I want you to take your palm and to tuck it in like this. Then I want you to take the four remaining fingers and to cover like that. Then I want you to look at this wonderful thing. Okay, so face your hand to yourself and go, hello, brain. Hello, brain. Okay, so this is not really the size of your brain. Um, the size of your brain is actually these two sort of hemispheres. These are the two hemispheres put together, but this is roughly the size of your brain as it sits in your skull. But for the purposes of this activity, I'm going to focus like this, okay? So if this is one hemisphere, one part of your brain, when we look at this, this part of your brain, these four fingers that are, you know, closed like this, this represents what we call the prefrontal cortex, okay? Now, the prefrontal cortex part of your brain is the area of your brain that's responsible for thinking, for processing, Another terminology we use for this is we say this is like the executive brain. This is where you solve problems. This is where you're decision making. And so this is represented by that. On a day-to-day -day basis, we are kind of walking around, 
and this is where we are. We're making decisions, etc. But the brain by nature is constantly scanning the environment for anything that might pose as a threat to your survival. One of the primary functions of your brain is, in fact, to ensure that you survive. And so when you sense a threat in the physical environment, what happens is you activate the part of your brain that's responsible to keep you alive. And so let's come back to this brain hand model example. I sense a threat in the environment. I see that saber-toothed tiger. I flip my lid. It literally is like a toot-toot-toot-toot-toot-toot alarm bell. There is a threat in the environment. And then you are able to activate the fight-flight-freeze. This is happening every second, right? Every you know, other second. And so we're constantly moving between here and here. If you think about it, if you've ever been sort of driving, when we were still driving on the roads and somebody swerves in front of you, you're not sitting there thinking, do I need to move my car out the way? You go, doo, 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 and you've already responded. And in fact, afterwards you go, I don't know how I escaped that. I have no idea how it happened, but I just responded in the moment. And this is because that survival brain is constantly looking out or scanning for threats in the environment and wanting to then do the work of defending or protecting you. So when you flip your lid, you then activate what we call the limbic part of your brain. That limbic part is activated, do, 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 do fight, flight, freeze, okay? And when we are in fight, flight, freeze mode, we're not always able to think at the same time as we're kind of responding. Afterwards, we might be able to typically go, oh, as I think and as I process what's just happened. But in the moment, and particularly in heightened danger situations, we're activating here, the decisions we're taking are not necessarily well thought out. If the natural response is to fight, you will often hear those people say, I actually blanked out. And I fought that person who was like 10 times bigger than me. And afterwards, I was like, how did that happen? How was that even possible? And so we're sitting here because we are protecting our survival. But now here's the thing about this wonderful, wonderful brain, okay? The wonderful brain that we have, colleagues, is not always able to distinguish between threats. What do we mean by this? Lucille. When you had that experience of presenting to that CEO and that exco and the CEO whom you looked up to and wanted to impress, and she did that terrible thing of saying, this is rubbish. Your brain went from here to toot, 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 toot. My feelings of safety have been compromised. I feel threatened in this environment. I no longer feel safe. And so those are what we then would call the psychological threats that we're encountering as well. In the work of a beautiful lady named Nancy Klein, um, she's in leadership development, and she speaks about something called a thinking environment. And she says, you know, in order for people to do quality thinking, there are certain things that need to be present. And when those things are not present, people are not able to do quality, productive, generative thinking, okay? 
And one of the things she says is harmful to this thinking environment. The book is called The Ten Components of a Thinking Environment. If you're interested in that kind of thing, please uh, invest in that kind of book. It's, it's powerful. But she says one of the things that threatens a thinking environment is something as simple as an interruption. And she says, in fact, an interruption, if I'm speaking and somebody rudely interrupts me, it registers in the brain in the same way that a fist to the face might. Interruption, so physical threat, and then interruption, psychological threat. All of those things that cause me to feel like I need to defend or protect something. There's a safety that's been compromised. And so sometimes that saber-toothed tiger, Lucille, is that CEO. Sometimes the saber-toothed tiger is that person do, do, who's, who's pretending to be confused or who's wanting to pick at your presentation to cause you to kind of doubt whether I'm making sense or whether I'm the one who's confusing people. Sometimes we are that saber-toothed tiger to others as well. And so it becomes critically important that you then understand exactly what's happening when we then perceive a threat in the brain. But here's the thing. Let's bring it back to speaking. Speaking is one of the things that is perceived as a threat by the brain, believe it or not. So speaking is perceived as a threat by the brain, and particularly in the face-to-face -face interaction, okay? In the face-to-face -face interaction, what is interesting is that human perceive eyes watching as an existential threat. I'm going to repeat that. When we are kind of presenting and particularly face-to-face -face, and maybe even on these virtual platforms to varying degrees, but this thing of feeling like people are watching me, people are looking at me, that feeling of being looked at is perceived by us as some kind of existential threat, okay? And so I stand up to speak. Audiences are scrutinizing us. Audiences are, you know, we're, we're, we've got a story playing in our head, perhaps, uh, have feelings of judgment towards us. All of these can contribute to these feelings of, I am not safe. So let's talk about what then happens physically to your body when all of this is happening. Because now you must understand that your body is going to respond in the best way to provide you with what you need to be protected, to defend yourself, to protect yourself. And so when that um, amygdala, so you've got this limbic system here, and in there's that little amygdala, the alarm bell. I don't want to get too technical, but when that amygdala sounds the alarm, and the amygdala is like a little knob, okay, so it's sitting right here, that sets off a chain of events, okay? And so all these hormones are released into your body, and they cause a couple of things to happen. So these are some of the things that you might have experienced when you were feeling particularly nervous. So one of them is that, you know, your heart begins to pump blood faster, okay? And what this does or what this um, causes to happen is that blood is then rerouted from the less essential organs to higher priority organs. So, for example, I don't need blood in my stomach. I certainly need more blood in my legs if I need to run in order to be able to survive. Okay? So I need to run or I need to be able to kick or whatever. 
Okay, and so it deploys blood from less essential organs to more essential organs. So your heart rate increases. You will feel it. Okay, and what it's doing is it's responding to that alarm bell that's gone off. Your pupils will dilate. Okay, and this is to allow that they want to let more light in. Okay. Sometimes when you're very nervous, what happens is you have this experience of just seeing people more vividly. It feels like they're all here. Okay? And this is because your pupils are actually dilating to let more light in. You need to be able to see clearly, you know, what is the threat and how can you best respond. When you think about that blood that's now deployed to organs that need it, it could account as well for what we describe as butterflies in our stomachs, Okay? where the blood flow to the stomach is actually significantly slowed down. And the same thing happens to you, to your skin, where because you have less blood on your skin, you then get the chills. So your skin will stand on end. You've got butterflies in your stomach. Your heart rate is beating faster. Your pupils have dilated and it feels like it's all here. Okay. And so part of the work that we then have to do is to say, how do we deactivate this alarm? Particularly in instances where I'm standing up to speak and the environment is not necessarily threatening. How do we make that distinction for ourselves to say, is this a real threat or is this a perceived threat? Sometimes the threat is perceived. Okay. And even when the threat is real, to be able to say, you know, can I still continue? Is the threat so big that I'm unable to even continue at this point? Or can I self-regulate, you know, without losing my sense of self? Okay, so self-regulate so I don't lose my sense of self. And then be able to continue uh, with the presentation. Let's hear a couple of comments as you're listening to this from yourselves. Uh, is it connecting to any of the experiences that you've had? Is it resonating in terms of assisting you to better understand how this whole thing works, the nerves, its connection to the body, um, that brain connection as well? It, yeah, it, it, it makes so much sense, Zoya, especially the eyes um, for me. So when I'm, I'm presenting to an audience or, you know, just looking into their eyes, I think just maybe depending on the expression that I'm getting from them, then I make up a story in my head. So I'm making up a story in my head about what I think they're thinking <laughs> and I'm trying to concentrate on my presentation as well. Um, 100%. Yeah. And, and I think what I've lately, what I've been doing is when I find myself doing that, I'll quickly move to somebody else's expression, somebody else's eyes uh, and just scan, scan the room and then, you know, just keep, keep, keep presenting and keep talking. But yeah, the, for me, the eyes that resonated with me quite a bit. 100%. And it's interesting because, I mean, Lucille, I've had experiences where you're talking and then you move across to someone and you're, that person yawns at the exact same time that you've just moved across to them. And again, you know, a story starts to set it, a story starts to kind of build in your head. Oh my God, am I so, am I so boring that they're sitting here just yawning in front of me? I'm just like that. And then the story can, can, can offset a whole lot of different things as well. And so some of the strategies around that would be to say, okay, I'm actually not even going to feed uh, you know, that particular thing, I'm now going to refocus or redirect my energy elsewhere um, so that I can continue to be productive. Uh, somebody's written something in the chat. Let's just quickly have a look at that. Um, Mudari says, the butterflies in my tummy. Oh, my word. <laughs> Mudari, what happens with the butterflies in your tummy? <laughs> so I, I usually do 
need the bathroom before before a presentation because my tummy just goes crazy because I'm so nervous. And and I can relate to that one as well. There's a friend of mine, and in fact, um, I think she joined one of the sessions before, um, and she said, is it normal um, that oftentimes before I present, I need to actually go to the bathroom? Um, I actually either have constipation or I'm so loose, I need to go to the bathroom and just kind of release, um, and I feel a little bit better. These are the things that these nerves can do, I'm telling you. But really for you to understand, you know, that that, that all of this is coming from that perception that there's a threat in the environment and then your body preparing itself to respond, um, you know, in the best ways possible. So, yeah, Dudu says the nerves can make me talk fast, too fast. I even forget to pause and drink water as I present. Absolutely. Right. So that you can imagine that that heart is beating incredibly fast. You know, some people kind of respond. And so what happens is that you pick up pace in general. Because, again, you're operating from that place of just get it over and done with. This is, this is feeling like a little bit of a threat. And sometimes not even conscious of it, right? Um, sometimes not even aware that you've picked up pace. Um, and sometimes you need somebody to say to you, listen, maybe slow it down a little bit. So if you can catch yourself in that moment where you're speaking a little bit too fast um, to be able to then catch yourself. The threat is usually having to present something huge in 15 minutes. We'll unpack that shortly. Dudu. Let me come to Mutari and then I'll hear from you. Yes, I do have a question. Sometimes um, my mouth tends to like dry up when, when I'm trying to speak. How can, I, how can I deal and handle with that going forward? Because then it makes it a little bit more difficult to, to continue speaking with my dry mouth. It's water. Have water. Nothing more, nothing less. Always have a little bit of water. Uh, I've become that person who takes water with me to these presentations online. I bring water with me, whether I'm presenting face-to-face or online. Um, And sometimes you will pick up that what speakers will do typically, because everybody gets nervous. And maybe let me start by saying that, that there's not a single person, no matter how distinguished they are. Yes, we get a little bit used to it. Yes, we learn tips and tricks as we move along. But for the most part, all of us deal with those nerves. An audience, a new audience is always intimidating, even for the most renowned of people and presenters. And so one of the things I do is I always have water. Think about the priests in the church as well. They're also having water. So have your water just to assist you from time to time, uh, you know, with that throat that dries up a little bit. Sometimes it's a consequence of nerves. Other times it is because you actually do need to hydrate uh, if you're speaking. So here we are. So have your water with you, Mutari. There's no other way. Um, having water is just one of those things. You will see people, they'll take a break and they'll go off and they have a sip of their water. It's calming, it's great, it's hydrating, uh, you know, for your brain as well. So, so, so always have that bottle of water or something. Dudu, uh, the threat is usually having to present something huge in 15 minutes. Let's hear a little bit about that. Well, I'm just, you know, talking about when you have to pitch and you really only have to so much time to pitch whatever it is that you're pitching and how that kind of impacts the way that you end up pitching, especially when you're not pitching something that's just easily condensed into two minutes, but like you literally, that is all that you have. Um, So, you know, you're not just nervous about the fact that you have to present this thing that you're presenting, but now you also have to get everything into that time Mm. um, and make it clear. So I think, you know, that's why I'm saying that 
sometimes the threat is that because mm-hmm. that's just looking at the clock and it's like mm-hmm. you i've just said hello and it's already like 10 minutes mm-hmm. has gone yeah so that's 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 also just the challenge that i that i sometimes face and and that's a challenge right that i think it's a challenge we face particularly the more the more uh skillful i think we become um and i'll and i'll explain that so so you're becoming a little bit more comfortable uh, now you expand on points uh etc cetera, etc cetera, and then you realize yo i've got 10 minutes and i still need to cover abc um and then that becomes kind of a stretch as well so i absolutely can relate to that uh where often in the sessions uh, sometimes i'll give people opportunity to do q and a to ask questions to make it more engaging and then it eats away at some of my other time and this is where preparation becomes hugely important because then you're able to kind of go okay i'm picking up that i'm losing um you know some of some of my time and there's still a bulk to cover uh, what can i sacrifice what can i let go of in what i had initially wanted to present uh so some of those things uh you know uh, for preparation uh, being one of the things that can assist you in terms of just coming back to that place where you self regulate because now you can discern between what's still important to do here or, or how can i do whatever i'd intended to do um in a shorter way uh, how do i land the same message um you know in a way that's a little bit shorter i was doing a session just before this one i think at about 2 o'clock today and we had a little bit of a time challenge because people joined later Uh, and then eventually i had to make the decision that one of the activities which would have been a breakaway group activity had to happen in the plenary for 5 minutes as opposed to the initial 20 minutes the group would have had so it's making those iterations i think in the moment as well which speaks to your levels of preparedness that can be useful and assist you and then of course i think you know it's also just that willingness to to just accept that sometimes you're not going to be able to cover it all so high level what are the things that definitely need to be communicated um and that can assist to self regulate as well and to let go what you cannot and then the other thing as it relates to preparation is getting ahead of time sorry getting a sense of the amount of time you have ahead of the time so be very clear with people who have engaged you to 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 present uh, you know what is the amount of time that you're giving me contract it up front be very clear about the time that you're then being given and particularly in instances where there's a Q&A ask the question does this 25 minutes include the Q&A or is it outside of the Q&A this is so that you can then plan your time accordingly uh, and use it in the most effective way and then of course make time you know make 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 a little bit of space for contingencies where possible this is not always possible uh, but try to do that okay so thanks for sharing some of your experiences there Um, I just want to go through this. So this is what I was talking to, which is that brain hand model by Dan Siegel. So you can look him up, D A N S E G A L, and really speaking to kind of how we can use this as a language uh, for when we feel safe versus for when we feel unsafe. So I, I want to come then to this concept of psychological safety. So psychological safety is actually a wonderful term uh, that was coined by the tech giant Google. and this was after they had set about doing quite a big experiment trying to understand you know how can we form the best team they asked themselves the question you know what makes the best team and so they undertook this wonderful project i think in 2012 it was called project aristotle and part of what they were trying to do there was to say you know in a team is it is it the people with the best skills who make the best team um you know is it about experts coming together to make the best team etc so they had all manner of different team compositions 
uh, to really try and whittle down to what are the qualities that make up what we might call a high performance team. And after years of research, um, you know, uh, all manner of research, qualitative, quantitative, focus groups, interviews, studies, questionnaires, etc., uh, they were able to whittle down to a couple of things that create, uh, you know, the best team. And the top of the list was this concept called psychological safety. And when we unpack this term psychological safety, it actually really refers to a situation where somebody feels safe enough to do what they describe as interpersonal risk taking. In other words, I can show up fully as myself because it feels safe in this environment to do that. So when members of a team feel like they can bring their full selves to the team, something is liberated you know, uh, for them in, in, in being part of this team. They share their ideas, they contribute uh, freely, they contribute willingly because it feels like the space is psychologically safe, okay? And so when we talk about psychological safety, there's a couple of things that need to be in place um, from the perspective of teams and building teams that perform in a particular way. For the purposes of today's session, I want to take this idea of psychological safety. In other words, I feel safe to bring the fullness of who I am to my presentations. And there's a couple of things I can do to assist me to have that sense of psychological safety. And there's just three things I want to put forward. The first of these is breathing. Okay. So when we first come into the world, we know that the first thing we do, colleagues, is to take our first breath, okay? And similarly, when we exit the world, we take our last breath. And I think for me, what this tells us is that breathing is fundamental to who we are. And we say that breathing is an autonomic system. It's autonomous. We don't control our breathing. It happens automatically, okay? And so a lot of people have studied breathing. And in fact, at some point, I invested um, in doing some work with somebody who was a breath coach. And I, I spent, uh, I went and did a couple of sessions and it was phenomenal, actually, the things that we were able to do in those sessions. But really, you know, uh, breathing has got many useful benefits, which I'm not going to go into now. But I just want us to acknowledge that breathing is one of those things that are then going to assist us and we'll do, you know, one or two breathing activities, right? So remember when we spoke about that tiger analogy, I said that the alarm system went off. I said your heart rate increased and the purposes of this was just to enable more blood to be pumped to those vital organs, okay? And this is intended so that you can then be able to defend or to protect yourself. And so in order to deactivate that signal, to bring yourself back to that place of psychological safety, as it were, you can then focus on deep, slow breaths, okay? This is what we also refer to as the relaxation response, and this helps to lower that heart rate. It'll stabilize your blood pressure, and it'll reduce some of that mental stress that you're then feeling. And so we talk about something called water breathing. It's a four count in and a four count out. And you literally would, you know, breathe in through the mouth and you would count one, two, three, four. And then similarly, you would release it through your, sorry, breathe in through the nose and then exhale through the mouth and you'd exhale to a four count. A couple of those 
are so perfect in terms of assisting you with that work of regulation. If you think about the many instances where you found yourself in a threatening situation, consciously, unconsciously, you are already saying things to yourself like, okay, as you calm yourself down, just breathe. Just breathe. Okay. Just breathe. And so this tells us about how this natural breathing response is incredibly powerful in terms of assisting us, uh, you know, with some of that regulation work. When we talk about the kind of breathing we're asking you to do, we say you want to do deep breathing. We also call this the diaphragmatic or intercostal diaphragmatic breathing. This is where you're not breathing from here. So it's kind of not. It really is about you kind of breathing deep into, uh, you know, your, your stomach area. And so here you actually want to imagine that they were like a balloon. I can't even stand up because <laughs> I'm, I'm very heavily pregnant, believe it or not. So I can't even like expand <laughs> any further than what I look like. <laughs> so what you want to do, though, is you actually want to imagine that you've got a, a balloon um, in your stomach. And then what you want to do is you actually want to almost imagine that that balloon expands or inflates and then deflates with your out-breath. So in-breath, it expands out-breath. So there you're doing deep breathing and you're really connecting, uh, you know, with your intercostal muscles and that diaphragm is expanding, um, you know, contracting and expanding. Okay. So, so that's really kind of the breathing. I'm not going to focus too much on it, but really to say, please do the four count in, four count out. And that's been found to be quite effective in terms of breathing. So it literally is in breath through the nose, out through the mouth, and repeating a series of those becomes incredibly powerful. The second one that can assist us in terms of really quieting some of that noise is this idea of affirming ourselves, the affirmations, um, the power of I am affirmations. So there's a wonderful uh, book by Joelle Alstein. Uh, it's called The Power of I Am. And in that book, Joelle Alstein asserts, you know, the importance of the words I am, but says most importantly, you know, what is so uh, critical to look at are the words that follow uh, the I am, okay? And so really being mindful of, and I think it was you, Lucille, who said there was a story that started to play in my head, okay? And Joel Alstein in some of his own research discovered that oftentimes, and particularly I think as women, I uh, could be wrong, but there is a tendency for us to kind of unconsciously use the word I am throughout the course of the day, but use it in ways that are not very positive and affirming. And so, you know, I am not good enough, right? Oh, I am terrible at impromptu speaking, right? I am too much of a fast speaker, whatever the case might be. Um, and so really asking us to, to, to really dig deep into kind of, you know, affirming ourselves in ways that are positive, affirming ourselves in ways that can change that narrative from one that is not unrealistic. We're not talking about reality versus unreality. We're talking about where because a particular situation is happening, you start to create a narrative that oftentimes is actually not the case. So I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of this. You know, I'm not. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not the right person for this. Why did they pick me? All of those kinds of things that we're saying unconsciously to ourselves, which then impact how we show up. 
I always say to people that as human beings, we're so incredible and dynamic that when we look at people's behavior on the surface, uh, we actually are showcasing through our behavior a lot of what's happening beneath the surface. So when you show up in a particular way, the question I ask as somebody who's in this leadership development work is what's happening beneath the surface for that person that causes them to show up in this way in their behavior. And so some of the stories that we then tell ourselves, those negative uh, things that we say about who we are, will show up in behavior on the physical, I mean, on the surface, on the top. Okay. And so really saying, how do we become people who say things like, I'm healthy, I'm happy, I'm strong. I am willing to try. I'm willing to give this my best shot. And one of the things I say is, you know, uh, the premise of the Be Heard program was that you have something of value to contribute. Uh, and I remember one time talking to a client who was saying to me, you know, I get particularly debilitated when I walk into spaces where there is that hierarchy. Hierarchy paralyzes me, is what he said. And I said to him, what if you then turn the focus? And I think I spoke to this in one of the sessions. What if you then just turn the focus from them to you and the value that you bring? I said, are you there to take away something from anyone? No. What are you there to do? No, I'm there to add value. Then maybe let that be your focus. Instead of, I wonder what they're thinking of me. Um, I wonder what, whether they think I'm good enough. Uh, I wonder, you know, all sorts of, of things that can then just pull you back. And so, um, you know, if you have an opportunity, think about some of the affirmations that connect to who you are and what you wish to bring uh, when you step onto the platform. And then, of course, you know, the final one is uh, this, this thing of uh, visualize it. You've got to see it to believe it. And I'll end off with a very short story about how I remember when I was preparing to participate in that Southern African speaking championship thing. Um, I think I reached a point where I had rehearsed that, that speech so much, um, I was certain that it was enough. So I had better done all the technical components. And yet something interesting happened because as I moved closer um, to the delivery of this thing, I was suddenly overcome with anxiety and self-doubt. And so even after months of rehearsing, all of a sudden, the self-doubt crept in. Um, and I knew I wanted to win this thing, but I just, you know, there was self-doubt and I was getting more anxious. Had I really practiced enough? Had I over-practiced? Had I over-rehearsed? You know, was, was it too much? Did people still want to hear the same presentation? And so I remember going to my club president at the time and saying to him, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, to move beyond this point. I've prepared, I've done the preparation work, but I still sit with this kind of weird thing, you know, that's causing me to really, you know, have anxiety and doubt myself. And he said to me, this president, you know, you're missing one ingredient in your preparation. He said, you've actually got to see it in your mind's eye to believe it. He said, you've got to visualize your success. He says, see yourself standing on that stage and holding that trophy. He said, you want it, right? I said, yes. He said, then, then see it visualize the outcome you want to achieve. And I remember as he said those words, I could see it. And there's motivation, colleagues, even in terms of the research for why visualization is so important. It's described by many as a mental exercise. Um, you know, it's, it's the act of actually processing, or in fact, it's the process of interpreting in a very visual sense, you know, this thing that you want to see happen. And so a lot of people use visualization to bring about positive outcomes um, in their lives. And, you know, the research tells us, interestingly, that when people actually visualize a positive outcome or they imagine themselves performing well at a task, 
their improvement in that task is actually, um, there is marked improvement in that particular task, you know, for, that, that they're doing. And so uh, really, really to say to you that there are ways in which you can then assist yourself to build that psychological safety that's going to assist you to work on some of these nerves. Breathe, okay, using that four in, four out, count in and four out. Affirm yourself, start to become mindful of the stories that you're telling yourself every single time you're presented with an opportunity. And when you are in a situation where somebody is trying to bring you down or take away from you, come back to kind of why am I here and what's the value that I want to contribute? Um, and then, of course, the final one being, you know, ahead of the session as part of your preparation, perhaps invest a little bit of time visualizing the outcome that you would like to see. Uh, you know, we can deal with these nerves. Uh, we really can overcome these nerves. Remember that the person who knows the presentation better than anybody is you. And so finally, to say, you know, nerves are part of the package of speaking, of presenting. And in fact, I want to go as far as to saying that we need them to succeed. We need a little bit of that rush of blood. So when you have the nerves, don't fight them. Okay, work with them. Understand that this is just your brain's way of protecting you from a perceived threat. And then reassure your brain, reassure your brain, you know, that look, this is not a real threat. You know that I can do this. And you're going to incorporate these self-regulation techniques that we've just spoken to here. Um, and so I hope it's been useful. Uh, just as you're thinking through your own experiences, um, and I'm hoping that you can then just take some of this back. I'm uh, happy for you to always, as always, share some of the other techniques that you're employing uh, that assist you to overcome these nerves. I'm mindful that it is 5.34, so I do want to thank all of you. Um, and then, you know, for next week's session, I think it is a consolidation of everything. And I do want to talk a little bit to the TED Talks, uh, really speaking to kind of an opportunity that you could then use to really step out and to become a thought leader. So taking you through kind of TED Talks and how those work. But next week's session will serve as a consolidation of everything we've covered up until this point. And then just giving you an opportunity to ask questions uh, if you have any. But thank you so much. And uh, as usual, we will send you the recording and any of the sort of talks and things I've made mention of, we'll send you links to those as well. Thank you, colleagues, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.